And at this time, if you would remain standing and hear the word of the Lord as he proclaims it to us this morning. From John chapter 2, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins from the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for the things that you are doing? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Ready? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and if you would, if you grab your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, looking at verses 13 and following across the board, as I was preparing for uh, this passage, looking through this passage, I was reading the text over and over again, imagining uh, some of the issues in which we would talk about as we tried to present uh, God's intent through this passage. As I was talking my way through it, it occurred to me that the movement of this passage, the direction of the passage, how the passage communicates itself, or how it was at least communicating itself to me, very much so followed the movement of our worship service. Our worship services take on a certain character. We do certain things in the worship services for a particular reason. We gather, we proclaim the God's name, we hear the word of the Lord, etc. So we do certain things in a certain fashion that follows, to me, that followed very clearly the text here is that I was imagining speaking to the text and sharing with you. So as I thought about preaching the text and thought about trying to communicate a bunch of different ideas all at once, it occurred to me that it might be helpful to kind of spread the sermon out. So we're going to have four sermons today. Don't panic. We're going to have four mini-sermons today. We're going to have four mini-sermons today, kind of broken up, tracking a little bit the idea of our worship and when we worship and how we worship along those lines that I think fall out of, or at least are a corollary to this text that we have in front of us. So if you open up your Scriptures and you see here, the passage begins here, with this line, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the phrasing there that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, some of you will remember that Jesus grew up in the, around the Sea of Galilee area, which is the northern part of Israel. That is about 80 or so miles away from Jerusalem. So those periods of time where the Scripture says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, they're talking about quite some distance, quite some challenge. It would take about a week or so for Jesus and the other Jews in Jesus' area to make that trip to Jerusalem. But in particular, the trip to Jerusalem was going up very physically. It was going up a hill because Jerusalem was built upon a mountain. Uh, and so when you went up to Jerusalem, you physically went up. But I think that the use of the term particularly here, but other places in Scripture as well, where you talk about going up to Jerusalem captures not just the change in elevation that takes place, 
but specifically the image or the idea spiritually of going up to Jerusalem. For Jerusalem, in addition to being the capital city of the Israelites, that is that it was kind of the most powerful, most important city of Israel, in addition to that, it was also the center of God's presence with his people. For the temple was at Jerusalem. And so when the Israelite people went up to Jerusalem, the imagery is not just that they were climbing the mountain, but also spiritually they were climbing the mountain. They were drawing closer and closer to God in every step along the way. Now the Israelites knew, as we know today, that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere in this world. There is nothing in this world that God's presence is not felt, is not, uh, does not, is not present there. And so God is present in all things, and yet in this unique way, in a special way, in order to demonstrate His grace and His mercy, Jesus, uh, or, or God, identified Himself with the Israelites and said that He would dwell in their midst. So you had the Israelites building the tabernacle initially, and then building the temple, and revering the temple, and recognizing that in a unique way, the temple represented the presence of God. Now, whenever we gather together in worship, one of the things that we always do is have a call to worship. Either a call to worship is written or it's sung, or in some way or another, we acknowledge the fact that we have gathered here in worship. Gathering in worship is a unique text. It's a, it's a unique act that we go through. Are we supposed to worship every minute of our lives? Absolutely. Is God present with us everywhere we go? And should a heart of joy and desire and praise be ours in everything that we do? Absolutely. But the Scriptures also make clear that we are not supposed to put off, we're not supposed to ignore the importance of gathering together for worship. And so you even see this, not just for those of us who seek to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, but for Christ Himself as this text begins, that he himself is going up to Jerusalem. He's not going up to Jerusalem just to be a part of Jerusalem. He is going up to Jerusalem particularly to worship. There is something important about gathering together with other believers in a particular place to worship our Lord. Does it make us better than those who don't gather? Of course not. Does it draw us into a more intimate relationship with the Lord? No, I don't think that either. But there is something pleasing and desiring for God Himself that we gather together in worship. Captured even here by the fact that Jesus, in His lifetime, goes up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. The text begins with a a reminder that it's a Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, there were certain periods throughout the time, throughout the Jewish year, three of them in particular, where all the Jews would do everything they could in order to gather together in Jerusalem and worship the Lord. There were three high points. One of them was the celebration of the Passover. So the celebration of the Passover is not just uh, something that everybody would do on their own. It would be an intentionally collective event where everybody would gather together. And as the people are gathering in Jerusalem, not just the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, but people from all over the empire, the Roman Empire would come, scattered peoples would do everything they can in order to make the journey to come to Jerusalem. Here we see Jesus 
making that journey of some 80 miles or so over a period of maybe as long as a week to get to Jerusalem to come there so he could join in worship. Now, the worship here is shaped a little bit by this reminder to us that it is the Passover festival. The Passover was one of the key moments in Israel's history. If you're familiar with the history, you know that this is when uh, God led the Israelites, the Jewish people, out of bondage in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and ultimately led them to the promised land and the spot where He would dwell with them. The Passover celebrates that key moment of God leading the Israelites out of Egypt. It was a high point of Israel's celebration. But that had happened 1,400 years, 1,400 years before the time of Jesus. And yet still, the Israelites celebrated that event. Now, if you've ever been to a modern-day Seder, a time where Jewish people today continue to remember and celebrate the Passover, you know that the essence of the Passover celebration is a reenactment of what God has done. It's a remembering, it's a, it's a mentioning back and forth, a talking back and forth as they say, do you remember how God did this? Now, nobody was alive back then, but nevertheless, we use that language. We say, do you remember when God did this for the Israelites? Do you remember when God acted in this way? Do you remember what God has done? That's a central part of every worship service. A key spot of what we do when we gather together in worship is exactly what Jesus is doing as He is going up to Jerusalem towards the Passover festival with all the other pilgrims, with all the other worshipers, as they're going up the mountain to Jerusalem to the temple of the Lord. They are recounting to each other the things of God. They are singing songs together about who God is. In our worship services, we usually begin with an opportunity for us to sing praises to our God, to identify characteristics and traits of who our God is. The songs that we sing here, we don't pick them overwhelmingly because they're good musically or because they're easy to sing or because Barrett or somebody particularly likes them. We sing these songs because they remind us anew of the glories and of the things of God, exactly what Jesus was doing as He was going up to Jerusalem with all the other Jews, to worship the Lord. Let's remind ourselves anew of the great things of our God. We do that through singing praises together. Please join us as we sing to the Lord here together. John chapter 2, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. He is on His way to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And the most important, one of the most important moments of a Jew's life is to come into God's presence at the temple. What an incredible gift. The temple is. Now, I gotta say, for most of us, it's hard for us to make that jump. Uh, that the temple was this massive gift, this wonderful, overwhelming gift to the Israelites. And, I, and we understand that because we have churches on every corner and churches are varying of beauty and those kind of things. And we recognize, appropriately so, that God desires to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And that can happen in any place, in any building, at any time, and should happen at every time and every place. So it's hard for us to appreciate necessarily the gift that is the temple for the Israelites and the gift really for the world that the temple was. What a wonderful blessing that out of everything in this world, God has determined, God decided 
that He would be present, that He would meet with the Israelites, His people there at that spot. And the temple was a physical reminder of that which we know to be true, that God is present everywhere. But here was this really physical, tangible expression of God's presence and the invitation that goes out to the entire world, the Jewish people, but then even beyond that, for people to come into God's presence and to dwell with Him. What an overwhelming gift that truly was. And the Israelites knew it, and they recognized it that way, and it celebrated that way in their literature, a recognition that the temple really is unique in a way that's hard for us to appreciate today because we recognize the glory of our God. We recognize the omnipresence of our God. We recognize the importance of worshiping Him wherever. And so it's hard for us to really appreciate the gift of the temple. But it was. And it was a gift specifically given by God to this world, by God particularly to the Israelites, so that they might know of God's presence with them. So Jesus is on His way up to Jerusalem with the excitement of worshiping with the rest of the Israelites. And in verse 14, in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus is on His way up to the temple celebrating, worshiping with the people with that great excitement of going and coming into the presence of God. And then as He enters into the temple... Now, the temple has a series of different sections to it. It's not just one big monolithic building or something like that, but rather there's that holy of holies, that that center inner spot where only one time a year does the great high priest go into that center holy spot to meet with the Lord. And then you've got an outer courtyard or an outer room, the holy place, where Other priests can sometimes go in and meet with the Lord in that place. Then you have an outer ring beyond that, an open courtyard, where lots of Jewish people and people who are in relationship with God can enter into that outer courtyard. And then you've got a courtyard beyond that, the courtyard of the Gentiles, which is the biggest spot, which is the idea where everybody can somehow gather. Uh, People from all nations can come and experience God's presence. And then even a courtyard beyond that, Uh, the uh, bigger and bigger area. So this is a very massive spot. And Jesus comes into the temple, and here in the temple are all of these animals and money changers and things going on. Now what are they doing there? Well, the high point of worship for the Israelites was that moment where they would sacrifice an animal. It's It's that moment where they come into God's presence, and like us, they are singing, they're rejoicing, they're recounting the good things of the Lord, but then that high point comes where they come physically into God's presence, and with a priest, they sacrifice an animal before God, and they proclaim, they make a certain acknowledgement through the sacrifice of the animal. They say, God, I realize that you are holy. I realize that you are majestic. I realize that you are everything that I am not. And I acknowledge before you today that I am not what I should be. Lord, there's no reason for you to accept me. No reason for you to take me. But God, I know that you will because you have promised that if I bring a sacrifice, if I bring something to stand in my place and to take the punishment for me, then I can rightly and appropriately be here worshiping You. 
So the high point for every Jewish worshiper was that moment where it's their turn to say to God, I know who you are. I know who I am. And I am so grateful that you are allowing this substitute, this animal, to sacrifice for me. And so you would do this. That's a high point of worship. So as you are traveling to worship the week beforehand, hey, the festival of the Passover is coming. Let's get ourselves to Jerusalem. This is our chance to worship the Lord together. And so on your way there, you either are dragging along an animal. You're either bringing along your sheep or your goat or whatever you're planning or oxen, whatever you plan on sacrificing. You either have to bring that from home or what you can do is you can get together money that you need and then go to Israel, to Jerusalem. And once you get to Jerusalem, you can actually purchase an animal there. You can purchase an animal so you don't have to bring it with you from home. So you don't have to drive it from home and all this kind of stuff. It's a wonderful service that the people of Jerusalem are offering to the worshipers that are saying, hey, when you come from all over the place, you don't have to bring your own animals. We will have them here that you can purchase and that you can do this. In addition, the Israelites were coming from all over the world, and many of them had different local, nas- lo- local coinage, local uh, money, types of money. And so when you got to Israel, to Jerusalem, and you were supposed to pay your temple tax in a certain type of coinage, well, you've got all these other type of things. You've got euros, and they're looking for dollars or whatever. Well, then they had a money changer that would set up there that would go ahead and change your money for you. When the other gospel writers write about an event that is very similar to this one or this event, they describe the fact that Jesus is frustrated with the unethical practices of the money changers and of the people selling animals that there is some picture here, some expression here of the fact that people are robbing each other or taking advantage of each other. Look, you come from far away. You want that high point of sacrifice to offer, to sacrifice a lamb, and somebody's gouging you for the price of the lamb. You know, capitalism run amok. And, and Jesus is, is infuriated or frustrated about that type of a picture. And that may very well be the case, but that's not the image here. Notice what Jesus does in this case. So he goes in and he sees the fact that they are selling oxen and sheep, etc. in the temple and making a whip of cords. So don't minimize this. Jesus is frustrated. He's angry. He makes a whip out. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that he went around and whipping the people. The whip would have been necessary to drive the animals out of the temple, which is what he does. So making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the, co- and the oxen. So he's, get, get out of here! And he drives these people out of, the, out of the temple. He overturns the tables. And he says to those who have the pigeons, take these things away. Notice he doesn't release the pigeons from their cages. He, he recognizes the importance of having pigeons there available for the poor to be able to purchase so the poor, too, are in a position of coming before God's presence. So he, he, he doesn't denounce in this text, he doesn't denounce the practice. What's he frustrated with? He's clearly frustrated. Here is this marvelous gift, this overwhelming blessing that God has given to the Israelites, a place where they can meet with God Himself. And, and, and not just the innermost people, or not just the Jewish people, but 
a place where everybody in the entire world, the court of the Gentiles, where even Gentiles can come and meet with God. And when Jesus walks into the temple, into that spot, to expect that he's going to join a throng of people in reverent worship to the Lord, this wonderful gift of God is being used as a marketplace. Animals baying, people calling out, oh, buy over here, buy over here. Coins changing hands. People focusing upon money. People focusing upon selling and buying. People not focusing. Unable to focus upon God Himself. This marvelous, fabulous gift that God has given. The glory, the joy of His own presence with His people and out of something that is good. It's a good thing to offer animals for people so they don't have to bring them from their own. It's a good thing to offer many changers. The rabbinic literature identifies that there are places out in the Kidron Valley, so a little bit of a distance away from the temple, that set this up and, and applaud them for doing that. Oh, it's a good thing that people are... They take this good thing, helping out the people, and they put it in the temple. They misuse the very gift of God. Now, when I spend time in my own personal reflections in my own life, and I realize the sin in my life, there are times where I am forced to confess incredibly wicked and very embarrassing things to my Lord. I won't confess them to you. I confess them to my Lord. And I'm forced to face up with a lot of that. But I will tell you, most of the time that I am seriously approaching the God, my God in a time of confession, it is built around my misuse of the gifts that God has given to me. He has given you fabulous things. He has granted you a family. What is the purpose of your family? It is to glorify God. He has given you a, a job. What is the purpose of your job? It is to glorify God, whatever your job is. He has given you oh, friends. He has given you relationships. He's given you parents. He's given you what? What are the point of every one of those gifts? They are to be used for the glory of our Lord. What you're doing with them is not bad. It's not evil. It's not wicked. But are you using the gifts that God has given you for the building up of His kingdom? I don't mean the church here at Hebron. Oh, I've got to go give some time at Hebron. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, oh, I've got to give more money to Hebron. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I got to, you know, all those things are fine, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm challenging you with is the very gifts that God has given to you. Are you using them for the purpose in which they are intended? Because Jesus walks in and sees the temple of the Lord, the most glorious gift that God has given, and He sees it being misused by His people for something that might be good, 
but not for what the temple is intended to be used for. In every worship service, when we gather together, we proclaim the name of the Lord, we celebrate who He is, and then almost always we shift into a moment of saying, in light of this glory and this majesty of God, who am I to be in God's presence? And we enter into a time of confession. I would encourage you to do that now, reflecting upon what it means that our Lord has given you wonderful gifts. And have you indeed used them for the fullness of His glory or not? Let's spend some time praying together. Father in heaven, how grateful we are that You have poured out upon us gift upon gift. Lord, You have blessed us in ways that we that it's almost impossible for us to imagine the blessings that You have given to us. And we know, Lord, that so many of them are given for our joy and for our enjoyment. And we thank You for that. But Lord, even those, the most selfish of gifts that You have given to us, are given primarily so that we might witness and magnify Your name to orient our lives more fully and completely to You, to express our wonder and joy at our salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, with my brothers and sisters here, I acknowledge that I do not think of the gifts of my life that way nearly enough. So, Lord, in the quiet of our hearts, remind us of the gifts You have given to us. Convict us, for when we have not given those things back to You, And then, Lord, grant to us your forgiveness anew that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear us as we confess silently before you. Lord, all this and so much more you have granted to us, and we desire to use them for your kingdom, we pray. Trusting in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask these things. Amen. Verse 17, immediately after Jesus rids and clears out the temple, His disciples then remember, in verse 17, His disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They look at Jesus and they say, wow, look at how passionate He is for the things of God. And this is a quote from Psalm 69 where David acknowledges that even though he's surrounded by a bunch of people who do not have that passion for God, even though he himself yearns for that passion for the Lord, he knows that that's not the case, but he turns his heart towards the Lord and he hears the promise of God again that the Lord will make us new. And so know the reality of the Scripture once again that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. Let's sing together of our forgiveness before the Lord. Every worship service is a bit of a dialogue. We set it up intentionally that way, but that's, I believe, the way that God desires it. It is not simply Him lecturing to us, but it is also an interaction where we are praising Him, we are speaking to God, and He is responding to us, and then He speaks to us, and we respond to Him. It's a dialogue that goes back and forth. But the high point of our worship together is when we encounter God Himself. And this takes place most clearly 
passionately through the reading and the exposition of His Word. So when we turn to the Word of God, we actually hear God as He presents Himself to us. And so the high point of our worship service is hearing God as He speaks to us, which is why the Scripture is so central in our worship time together. And this is, to some extent, what happens in Jesus' experience here during this time together. He's on his way with the Israelites. He's praising God. He's singing of his Father's praises as he's on his way into the temple. He gets to the temple and he sees the brokenness that is there, the sinfulness of people doing good things, but at the wrong time, at the wrong place. And he clears them out of there. And he clears it out. And then comes the encounter that the people have with God Himself. Verse 18, So the Jews said to Jesus, so Jesus has just done overthrowing the temple, tossing everybody out, and the Jews then come to Him and say to Him, now this is a little bit um, code language for John. Not always, but often when John says the Jews came to Jesus, they don't mean that the whole nation piles in next to him or that random Jewish people come up to him and say something to him. That's usually John's code language for the leaders of the Israelites or the the head Jews or something along those lines. In this case, most likely it is the people who are leaders of the temple itself. So the temple leaders would have been there, and they come up to Jesus and they say to him, "What sign do you do to show us? What, what, what sign do you show us for doing these things?" They they come up to Jesus. Now the temple is surrounded by temple guards. It has a lot of people there who uh, who have whose job is it is to maintain order and and structure within the temple and to keep the bad element out. So when Jesus starts overturning the temple and tossing out the animals and stuff like that, I expect that the next thing that we're going to read is that Jesus is wrestled to the ground by the guards and then he's arrested or something along those lines. That doesn't happen. Instead, what you see is after Jesus has cleared everything out, then people come up to him and say, by whose authority are you doing this? Now, why isn't Jesus immediately arrested? Why is it that the... Uh, the guards allow him to clear the whole temple. I don't know. But I suspect that in nudging in the back of the leader's mind is something that says, you know what, maybe this guy has got a point. Maybe we have allowed something to happen here in this wonderful, marvelous gift of God, this temple, that maybe shouldn't be allowed to happen and so they, so I think maybe they're hesitant about this. So they instead, they go up to Jesus and say, by whose authority are you doing this? Now, I suspect that they're expecting something. They recognize him as perhaps a Jewish leader, a, a, a rabbi from the northern nations or whatever, the northern uh, part of the nation. And maybe they're coming up to him saying, hey, uh, whose teaching are you following that leads you to do this kind of thing? Or did you hear from the Roman authorities to do this? Or did you hear from maybe the temple authorities to clear out the temple? On whose authority are you doing this? All right, so they're asking the question about what's the force, what's the power behind what you are doing, what you do? And then Jesus answers. And he replies in verse 19, Jesus answers them. Notice that the text says that. Jesus thinks that whatever he's about to say is an answer to their question. 
Whose authority do you do this by? What sign do you give us that gives you the right to clear the temple like this? And Jesus answers them by saying this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, if you've been part of a Christian fellowship for some time, that immediately triggers in your mind, or it should trigger in your mind, three days I will raise it up. Oh, this is Jesus talking about His death and His resurrection. And as John does, almost always in every story in his Gospel, he's driving us to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not about cleaning up worship. This is, not about, this is about Jesus Christ on the cross, His death and His resurrection, the gift of salvation that He has provided for us. And so Jesus orients our thinking that way. But notice how He says this as an attempt to answer their question. By whose authority do you do this? And Jesus says, do you see this temple that is around here? Do you see this marvelous place and how wonderful it is? For us to appreciate this, we do have to marvel at how wonderful it is. The temple was huge. It was by far the biggest building in Jerusalem. It was by far the biggest building that anyone who hadn't traveled to Rome or something uh, would have ever seen in their life. The temple was huge. It was 150 feet tall. It took up uh, uh, four or five city blocks in terms of its size. It was massive in what it had constructed. Now, it didn't match the beauty of Solomon's temple. This is King David's son, who a thousand years before Jesus built this absolutely magnificent building. It was huge. The biggest thing, uh, the temple back in Solomon's day was absolutely... But that temple had been destroyed. 400 years before Jesus, they rebuilt the temple. Not nearly so big, not nearly so magnificent, but nevertheless, quite a structure, quite a, quite a testimony of their devotion to God and their hope and expectation that God will yet still remain and dwell with His people. So they build this temple, this very significant thing. And then about 50 years earlier, King Herod of the birth narrative, you remember King Herod of the birth narrative, King Herod began to reconstruct the, the temple and enlarge it and expand it. And by the time that Jesus here walks into the temple, the temple was once again a massive place, a, very, a place of huge and beautiful grandeur that had been worked on, on and off, literally for 400 years. And certainly in the past 46 years, had had tremendous work being done on it. And Jesus says, do you see this building? Look around you. You tear this building. If you want to know what kind of authority I have, you tear down this building, I can build it back up in three days. That's a great construction company. Okay, you want to hire that person for your renovations. Okay, in three days, I can rebuild this entire place. I can completely rebuild the temple. Now, the Pharisees, the people who asked them this question in verse 20, the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can raise it up in three days. They're they are mind-boggled, or they're thinking what we're all to be thinking. Wait a second. If it takes humans 46 years to get here, who could do it in just three days? 
Jesus is walking into a situation where he sees this wonderful gift of God, the, the, this marvelous temple, this, ex, ex, this verbal, or, or I'm sorry, this tangible expression of God dwelling with his people. And he walks in there and says, do you see everything that is majestic here? You're missing the point. The point is not the glory of the building. The point is not how majestic the building is. The point is not us in this building. The point is the presence of God. And that's who Jesus is. When they say, what authority are you doing this by? Jesus basically claims, I am God. I can build this temple in three days. I am the one that you are expecting. This is my house. This is my Father's house. I am the very presence of God. As John does so often, he urges us to shift our attention from what was the old covenant, the old expression, the old hope that we would come into God's presence and announce our unworthiness to Him, and yet He let us stay anyway, to the fact that God would dwell tangibly, physically with every one of us through His Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, His Son. So when we encounter, when this encounter with Jesus, when the disciples or when, when the Jews gather around Him and says, Who are you to do this? Jesus says, I am the very thing that this temple is meant to symbolize. This temple is meant to point to me. And I am here. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Absolutely, he has in mind that idea of the destruction of his life, his human life upon the cross of Jesus Christ and his ultimate resurrection. But he's not just pointing to a physical event that's going to happen in his future time and the ramifications for that. He's pointing to who he is. Not just some great teacher, not just a marvelous human being, but God himself dwelling in our midst. All too often we get distracted by the things that are nearby and we lose track of God in, his, in our midst. This passage urges us once again to claim and to hold passionately to the fact that God dwells here with each and every one of us. Let's stand together as we sing and rejoice in our Lord. Our text today ends with this word that the disciples, when they remembered that He had been raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this and they believed the Scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. When the disciples saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed Himself and spoken in us to every believer in this room, when the risen Lord Jesus Christ appears to us, what do we do? We remember what He has said, and then we believe and act accordingly. When we go from this place, we need to do those two very things. We need to remember what the Lord Jesus says to us, and then believing it in our hearts to act accordingly now and forevermore. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.